Dirtin Perikei Mishnehei 5.5. And the Mishnah continues with various Takanos Mepetikono Olam, but this Mishnah is a little more um, involved than that. Um, it's actually a Mishnah that is re-quoted, reprinted here from the Mishnah Meseches Edios. In Meseches Edios, we have a collection of testimonies, that's what Edios means, and they came from various um, Tanaim about... Uh, what happened Yom on that day, that great day when they opened the doors of the base of Midrash, and they sort of essentially, the Tamil Chacham had essentially deposed Rabban Gamliel uh, for how he treated Rabbi Yeshua, and they put uh, Rabbi Yochanan, excuse me, Elizabeth Nazaria, excuse me, Rabbi Elizabeth Nazaria to be the Nasi. On that day, they opened the doors up, and people were invited to come in from all over, and various people of different traditions would report those traditions, and they're collected in Masechus Edios. So that's reprinted here. Um, and therefore, we actually have four different topics covered in this Mishnah. And the latter two are Takanos. So here it says, Heid Rabbi Yochanan ben Gurgada. These were the four items about which Rabbi Yochanan ben Gurgada attested. He's uh, also a Tana. The Mishnah talks about how he was especially, um, in Chagiga, he was especially... Uh, Strict that he even ate his chulin betahara, and uh, it also says Tosefta says he was involved in working the base of Mikdash, closing the doors. So he gave the following four different testimony four different items. Okay, so item number one regards the chareshet. The chareshet is a female cheresh, meaning a deaf mute. And interestingly, by the way, um, the Tosefta in Trumos says that Rabbi Yochanan Gugna's children were um, deaf mutes. In any case, so he says regarding a deaf mute that he has a tradition, Shehisiya Avia, that her father is able to marry her off. Interestingly, because she's a deaf mute, she lacks Da'as, and therefore she can't inter- enter into any, you know, legally binding transactions, including accepting Kedushin. So a deaf mute can't get married on her own, but while a girl is 12 and a half years old or younger, her father can accept Kedushin on her behalf, and that's what we're talking about over here, that her father accepts Kedushin on her behalf, now marrying the deaf-mute off to be a wife. So he points out here, as his, like, Chiddush is, she yotza v'get. Even though she lacks the requisite das mental capacities to, on her own, enter herself into a marriage, but she has enough mental capacities to receive a get, because a get can be received by a woman balkarcha against her will, which means we don't need to have her das. She doesn't need to be consensual. She doesn't have to really understand, um, you know, to consent to the full, if you will, you know, undoing of the transaction. That is the severance that a get effects. All that a, the mental capacity that a woman needs to have to effectively receive a get is she has to understand that this is crisis, that this is the marriage is over, and she shouldn't go back. She shouldn't go back to her husband. Um, that's uh, like called a choseris, a woman who's like, um, she goes back again and again after she's um, Michelle Chabachoseris, she's sent away, but she goes back again. And the assumption is that a woman who's a deaf mute has the requisite mental capacity to understand she's been sent away and not to go back, so she can be divorced. Okay, that's the first of his four testimonies. No other connection really um, to our topic here. It is mentioned, it's a get, and this is about a get, but I think that's, I think that's just totally um, coincidental. Now, part two of our Mishnah, the second of the four items which he testifies, um, actually has a 2A and 2B. So part two is about a girl who was married off um, by her mother or brother. So the case is that if a girl, like I said before, could get married off 
um, by her father, that would be a Doraisa marriage. He can accept Kedush on her behalf so long as she's just, you know, a, a, a Katan or even a Nara, 12 and a half or younger. But if she's orphaned, meaning her father's no longer alive, so the rabbis instituted that her mother or her bar mitzvah brother um, could marry her off, um, and then she would be married rabbinically. And the thought is that that is really to be a benefit for, for her, so she's not roaming the streets, and uh, she's protected and, and lives a proper life. So that's for her interest. So the truth is that such a girl, if she wanted to, could... Um, reject that husband and not be married to him and if even in fact if she is married to him like rabbinically if later on before her about mitzvah she decides she doesn't like him after all she can be um she can do mune she can like reject him and be like essentially retroactively never married meaning she could marry cohen after that even so um we're talking about such a case so she's therefore kind of rabbinically married now if the girl's parents were not her father was not a cohen so she is not a Kohenist, she can't eat truma a woman who marries a Kohen is part of his household. There's like a Kenyan there, and the Pasuk specifies that, that um, with a Kenyan nefesh of a Kohen, his household, meaning his wife or even his um, slaves, can, yes, eat truma. So this woman is being, this girl is being treated as his wife, and therefore the Mishnah is going to say that there's in some limited capacity she can eat truma, uh, even though the truth is that really Midoraisa, they're not married. This marriage is like a imaginary marriage sanctioned by the rabbis, but they're not married. So therefore, Midorah says she can't eat truma, but she could eat truma rabbinically, meaning rabbinic truma. And that's the first, you know, 2A of innovation of the mission here. It says inside, Va'al katana bas Yisro, he also testified regarding a girl who's a minor, whose um, father is not a Kohen, he's Yisrael, Shenisses the Kohen, who marries a Kohen. Because, meaning again, this is rabbinically married by her mother or her brother, that she's permitted to eat truma. Now, since she's only rabbinically married, if you will, so she only can eat rabbinic truma. Um, but that can happen in lots of ways, uh, meaning she can't eat truma doraisa because she's not really married to a Kohen midoraisa. But according to most Rishonim, only Dagan, Tirish, and Yitzhar, grain, wine and olive oil are obligated in, in trumos midoraisa other ones only midorabanan so that according to those shitas you know uh, let's call it rice or apples those you take trumos amaisa but that's rabbinic in nature and therefore um so she can eat those kind of foods according to the rambam who i think is the more like famous shita because the rambam is the rambam um he holds that essentially all agricultural produce except for vegetables are obligated midoraisa in trumos amaisa so according to the Ramam would be another scenario where it's only rabbinic in nature, like for example, if the stuff grew in a you know in a atzachinanaku like a flower pot that doesn't have perforated holes, it's only rabbinically required, and so on. Whatever the case is, the point is she's allowed to eat truma. That's truma midurabanim, and the chiddush is that you might have thought if she's eating you know the truma rice and apples in the house, she'll soon eat the truma grapes and wheat, and the grapes and wheat are actually you know, Truma Medoraisa, perhaps. Um, so aren't we afraid of that? The point is that we're not afraid of that. Um, and that's the Chiddush here. And although that seems very sort of un-Rabbinic, usually the rabbis, of course, are afraid of easy mix-ups that will lead to it. Isra Doraisa. Here we're not afraid of that because she's a minor anyway. So our worst-case scenario is that a girl who's not Bas Mitzvah eats Truma, which, well, you can't do the Lachachila, but you have it since she's a minor, it's not an Avera.
Okay, fine. That was 2A. Now 2B, another din regarding the girl who's married off by her brother or mother rabbinically, that the imesa ba'ala yorsha, if she dies, her husband, like her rabbinic husband, because Midrash is not married, but her rabbinic husband is the one who inherits her. The point here is that the Yerusha is a dinda oraisa. Normally a girl who's not married, and this girl isn't married to Midrash, when she dies, it's her father. If there's no father, let's say her brother would inherit her. So here the rabbi is saying, even though really Midrash, her brother should inherit her, but Midrabanan, we're letting her husband marry her. And that's just because they're living as a husband and wife, we're treating like a husband, so he gets to inherit her like a husband would inherit his wife normally. Uh, if you'll ask, wait a second, if Yerush is a din rice, how can the rabbis undermine that? The answer is the rabbis have a power of hefker, bez, and hefker. They can always render someone's property ownerless um, and then sort of reassign it wherever they want. And that's what's happening over here. They essentially effectively are rendering her her uh, her estate that she leaves behind ownerless and then giving it to her uh, surviving husband. Okay, that was the second thing. Now, the th- again, no mention of here of Takanos, not do with Gitan at all. Now, point three and four are Takanos. That's what they're mentioned here, presumably. So, the third thing that he testified about was Valhamarish Hagazul on a beam that's been stolen, Shebanao Babira, that he builds, that the thief builds that stolen beam into his like large home, whatever it is. Sheyitol as Damav, that he is allowed to, that the victim, the Nigzal, the person from whom he stole it, should accept cash um, in lieu of the actual beam. Because of a tikkun called Takanas Hashavim, a tikkun for the sake of penance, penitence, so people can do tshuva. So here's just the, the bigger picture here. The Torah has a mitzvah all to itself. Besides, for the lo sigzol, you're not allowed to steal. That's a mitzvah to itself. And when a person steals, he's violated that. So he became a thief, and now he's got to do tshuva. Um, it happens to be that when it comes to gazela, there's also another mitzvah, which is the requirement of veheshev esa gazela asher gazal. He has to return anything that was stolen. So if a person steal, if I steal your tennis shoes from your closet, I have to, uh, if the tennis shoes are still extant, they still are around, so I'm required to return them to you. I can't just give you the value of the tennis shoes. I have to give you those very tennis shoes. I can't give you new tennis shoes. I have to give you the very tennis shoes that I that I took from you if they're around. If they're no longer around, like I lost them or something, you know, my dog ate them, so then I have to give you the value of what I took from you. That's a separate separate dental to itself. So, while you may know that if there was um, a shinui, like a, a relevant change to the stolen item, so now it has a different name, shinui yashem, or shinui maisa, it's been transformed to something else entirely, um, so then, yeah, it it um, there's the mitzvah of of the thief acquires the stolen object which has been transformed, and he has to just give back that value instead. Um, that's not the case of our mishnah. The case of our mishnah is you took a a beam and you stuck it in the as like a support of a house, so the beam is still the beam, and therefore, technically speaking, the thief who stole the beam has to return the very beam that he stole. But the rabbis realize people won't come to do tshuva if it's going to cost them dismantling their house. And therefore, they made this dindarabanan, which is, in situations like this, this is a general principle, not just one particular application, of, not just one a specific rule to beams, but in general, when returning a stolen object will cause a person significant, you know, harm or, 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 or inconvenience or expense, um, which would then inhibit him from returning the actual um, object and doing tshuva. So the rabbis institute in such a situation that, that the thief 
um, can do tshuva by giving back value instead of the value of the stolen object and not giving back the object itself. So just to make sure this is clear here. We're, the point here, this is Takana Sashav, and we're trying to do a tikkun here to allow people to become penitent, meaning to do tshuva and stop being thieves. So just like, you know, when when if a person eats bacon, so he's on Nevera, he has to do tshuva, so stop being a bacon eater, and there's no requirement for him to like regurgitate out what he ate, he just has to do tshuva, not do it again, whatever tshuva involves. So so too, a person who's contravening the isra of stealing has to stop being a, a thief and do tshuva. It doesn't require him to, so to speak, regurgitate what he stole to, to do tshuva. Okay? There happens to be a separate din all to itself, that uh, this that the, if one has the object, he has to return it, or if he hasn't, he has to give value back. That's a separate mitzvah. Okay? We're not focused on that, really. Um, and although there's a requirement when you do tshuva, to do to if you are going to repent on a matter that's been on the chavero between you know interpersonal matter between you and a fellow Jew, so you have to at all events be maratza. You have to appease your victim. Um, here we're saying you can appease your victim with the value, not give the actual um, beam or whatever that you stole back, um, because again, because you want people to do tshuva and stop being thieves. And the rabbis are giving you a pass with respect to returning the actual thing you stole, allowing instead to give value in its place so people will be encouraged um, to do teshuva and stop being thieves, etc., uh, which is, in the rabbi's minds, more important than the than the uh, victim getting his very beam back. Um, if you'll ask the question, the very legitimate question, wait a second, the Torah says you have to give the beam back, so how could the rabbis say you can't? You don't need to, I should say. So the answer is, um, just like the rabbis have the power of, of hefker, bez, and hefker, which they use sometimes, um, uh, which might even be in play over here. As far as the requirement to return Heshavis a gazelle, the very stolen object, there the rabbis have the power um, which, of of saying that you can do Bisheva Altasa, you can just sit in your hands and not carry out a a mitzvah doraisa. And that would be, like the Ram learns fascinatingly, that the mitzvah to return the stolen object is one mitzvah, and the mitzvah to return the value, is a, the, stole, the value of the stolen object, if you can't do the object itself, is a separate mitzvah. So the is saying, okay, the object's around, but we're giving you a, a pass to not return that object, because they're telling you to sit in your hands and do nothing, like Sheva Altase, kind of like the rabbis say, you know, we're not going to blow a shofar on the first day of, uh, on Rosh Hashanah, if it falls on a Shabbos, for whatever reasons, even though the Torah says you will, but the rabbi says, no, we're not going to. Um, and they can do that. It's not telling them to do an avera. It's saying they're telling you not to do a specific mitzvah, to be passive and do nothing at all. Okay, so that was point number three, the takana of takana sashavim, so people could do tshuva, make it easier on them to do tshuva from being thieves or returning value instead of the actual object in the event that it would be very difficult for them to give the object itself back. And finally, number four, valchata sagazula, if a person stole an animal, which is being brought as a chata, so we're talking here about a sheep, um, and this female sheep that you're supposed, or yeah, that's supposed to be given. Um, if you stole it, so then it's not yours to consecrate to make it into a chatas. So that means when you offer it, it's not really your offering, and really you're not getting an atonement. Um, but they made a dindarabanan, um, provided that shlonoda larabim, assuming that it's not a publicly known fact that this is a stolen sheep. Um, what does that mean? So there's two shitas. Either it means that three people don't know about it, or like it's not a generally widely known thing. That shehi mechaperes that this, um, the bringing of this offering, even though it wasn't yours, is mechaperes. Now the one shot here, my preferred shot, 
it's like the Rosh, but Tiferes Yisrael, is that um, what they did is the rabbi said, although it's not yours, and therefore you really shouldn't be able to attain a tome with it, they are using the power of Hefker, Bez, and Hefker all over again. They're making an owner list, letting you, the thief, acquire it, and therefore when you consecrate it and bring it as a, a chathas, it actually is your animal for being a chathas. That doesn't mean you have to, don't have to repay the, what you stole. That's a separate point. But our point is here, the animal's yours, and actually if she is atonement for you, not everyone agrees with that. Many learn that it doesn't actually do anything for you. It just it just um, doesn't require you to do it a second time. But let's learn even that it is, as the Mishnah says, it is effective getting a kapara. Why would they do that? Because they want to make sure that the mizbeach, the, the altar, functions properly. The concern is like this. If the Kohanim were afraid that people who look a little shady and brought, you know, achatas to be brought on their behalf, if the Kohanim are suspicious that maybe this is a stolen sheep, so the problem is they're going to say, listen, once we offer this thing, we'll have to eat the meat, and we don't want to eat the meat of a, a, a non-consecrated animal which we shechted in the in the azara and wasn't a valid korban and we eat it that's an iser you're not allowed to do that it's super super not not kosher that's an iser um there's actually it's a car involved here so we don't want to do that so therefore they're just not going to eat and therefore they're not going to offer them as offerings and therefore the whole you know enterprise of the basic english and the offerings of mizbech and the kohanim's relationship to the people all could come to a nasty grinding halt so the rabbi said no we're not doing that we're not letting that happen we're going to say listen every kohen can totally trust whatever sheep they're bringing as a chatas, because the rabbis are saying it's effective and therefore it's kosher and good, and therefore the things will function as they ought to function in terms of no hesitation on the behalf of the kohanim. This is because the kohanim don't want to eat, um, I'll call it treif. Um, that being the case, it's got through the chatas. But let's say, for example, an ola, an ola is a burnt offering that the kohanim don't eat any of it. So there, the rabbis didn't see any reason to make any such tikkun, takana. And therefore, uh, if a person steals an animal or even buys an animal that he knows is stolen and brings it as an ola, he won't be guilty. Okay, it's just for chatas because the case of tikkun is back. And then again, that this second, this final case here, the fourth exa- fourth case is the second example in our Mishnah of a takana, analogous like tikkun olam, and that's why it's included here in our Mishnah.